Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, uh, before we get to uh, David Zoll, let me tell you about Down to Earth. Now there's hardly anyone in the world more down to earth than Jesus. Now that sounds far-fetched because, well, Jesus is God. But read the Gospels and you find Jesus telling stories that ring true from beginning to end. Stories you can immediately identify with. Stories that make you go, hmm. The parables of Jesus meet us as we are, but don't leave us as we are. In the new book, Down to Earth, we learn that Jesus' stories are meant to be lived into. When you do, you and the world around you are transformed for good. Now, almost a third of Jesus' teachings were stories. How well do you know these parables? How well do you know the greatest stories ever told? Do you know the secret to a strong prayer life, the joy of spending someone else's money, how to overcome anxiety or learn to forgive? In Down to Earth, Pastor Tom Hughes guides us through these amazing stories. They teach, challenge, convict, heal, comfort, and motivate us. Now, these are the greatest stories ever told because they hold the power to change the world. Now, you can go to downtoearthbook.com to learn more about Pastor Tom Hughes' new book, Down to Earth. Now, without further ado, David Zoll talking about his new book, Seculosity. Seculosity. It's a good name. I don't know how to say it, but that's what it is. Secu... Anyway, back to the show. Today, we have joining us from... Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia. David Zoll. Welcome to the show, David. Oh, thanks, Luke. Sun, uh, fun to be here. Yeah, right on, man. So uh, you're in Virginia, and uh, you graduated from Georgetown, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, D.C. It's about two and a half hours from here, but it feels like a different life a long yeah. time ago now, 20 years you, ago. You also lived in New York for a while, but where's like home home for you? Well, New York City is actually home home. That's where I was. Okay. That's where I was born and probably raised. Uh, actually I was just, I was born there and then raised sort of close by. So that's, okay. that's the closest it feels, you know, I moved around a bunch. Did you? Yeah. Uh, so lived in Europe for a bit, lived in South Carolina for a little bit. Um, went to high school in Connecticut. Um, what you, what did your parents do that made you move around so much? Well, my dad is actually a theologian and a minister, an Episcopal minister, but he went to go get his PhD in the middle of sort of. He was, it's a bit restless, so went from job to job to job, but then also he went to go get his PhD in southern Germany when I was like eighth grade, you know, so like they put braces on some kids to make them feel awkward during that time, and for me, they just stuck me in a foreign language where I couldn't talk to anyone, so wow. uh, yeah, that happened. What's, uh, what is the best thing that happens when you move to Germany as an eight-year-old? Uh, I mean, I could give you like the, you learn a lot about, you know, different foods and things like that. And uh, I, I, I would say this actually, when you're, when you're in eighth grade and you move to a, a European country, you immediately basically get a driver's license because the public transportation is that good and everyone is that independent. And so I was living in Switzerland for a year and living in Germany for a year. And I was essentially like completely mobile in a way that I wouldn't have been allowed to be in the States until I was 16. Um, like this one more serious thing is that you know your 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 horizons expand, but also you're like grounded in history. Everything's super old and uh, scrunched together, and it just kind of gives you a different different uh, view of things. So you also like if you're a teenager during that time, the the alcohol stuff that you go through as a teenager in America, like hiding and you know mm-hmm. p- people trying to figure that out, that was almost like a non-factor in my adolescence for that reason. So I I, I, I consider that a net positive, but also you know it's, it's yeah it's a different world. Do you do you take that approach with your kids? 
Well, my kids are super young. I mean, I've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. So, uh, is that, but is that what you're thinking about doing? I would, I would, I mean, I'd love to move to Europe, first of all, but in terms of like when it, as it relates to pro- alcohol. prohibitions around alcohol, <laughs> yes, I definitely am one of these people that thinks like the stricter you are, the more you set it up as forbidden fruit. And it certainly yeah. didn't, it didn't have that allure for me because uh, for whatever reason, it just didn't seem as desirable. Yeah. I've got another friend who's spent some time in Europe and that's what he does with his kids. And so I'm taking note. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a strong preference on that, but uh, it's fascinating. You're not, you're not driving cars over there. That's the one thing. You're not operating heavy machinery. You're, you're on bicycles. So, Yeah, I feel like a DUI at whatever age you are is probably a bad thing. Yeah. Just c- call me old-fashioned. Call me old-fashioned. <laughs> okay, uh, let me tell you about this, uh, this. Okay, you wrote a book. It's called Sec- Seculosity. Did I pronounce yes. that right? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. it. Okay, uh, so I start reading the book and I realize I did a... 13-week sermon series that's this I'm not saying it's you as good of an idea as yours, but it's the same premise as yours. I did it mm. two years ago, and me and a friend of mine wrote a series called Christians Make the Best Atheists, and we did the same like categories as you did, but talked about them with ancient gods compared to modern gods, uh-huh. and it's the same idea. We even use the David Dark stuff, yeah. the um, Ernest Becker apocalyptic romance stuff, um, you, you talk about somewhere in the book, I thought about how, uh, when you don't go to church as much, you have a greater like belief or connection in like aliens or something like that. Mm. Or you, some, we do an alien thing. You did something. I forget what it was. that was similar to that. Like but trolls, horoscopes. That's what it is. Things yes, like that, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so obviously I couldn't write this book cause your book is better than our sermon series. But the idea that everyone is religious, even if they don't want to say it is, uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down is what I'm saying. Like, I'm oh. on board with this book from the very beginning. Well, thanks. I, I listened to the uh, episode you did with David Dark. I mean, that, that book was, I, I think it's phenomenal. I sort of was reading it. It was like, oh, man, he's written the book I wanted to write. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. And then over the years, I was like, well, I think I could do some more specifics in some, some of these areas, and that could be fun to do. But um, yeah, that sounds, Christians make the best atheists. What a great title. Yeah, I, re- we, uh, I ripped that off from um, Larry Hurtado whose book, Destroyers of the God, I think he has a, a line that's like buried in like page 200 that says something like that. I think that's where I got the title from. But it's, um, it's the same idea that mm. you know, early Christians renounce all these other deities. And so th- there's this practice of on the eve of Easter, they would spit to the direction of like the, the Parthenon, renounce the devil and all the gods, and then they'd get baptized. And then everyone would call them in the, in the Roman world atheists because they didn't believe in these other deities. And so sure. it's, a, it's the same idea of acknowledging the, uh, the divine expectations we put on these quote-unquote secular things that, that you're doing in the book. But, oh, well, that's, uh, it's good to know. I mean, I, I feel like it's, from the reception so far at least, it feels like, uh, and, and you know, I, honestly, after I turned in the manuscript to when it came out, there was just like every week there was something where it's like, hey, this is as functioning as a religion. This seems to be very religious. Yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, just get the book out there. But at the same time, it's, it's public domain. This is all, I'm glad it's uh, resonating with people because it certainly resonates with me. Yeah, no, you, you did some good stuff here. And I know even at the end of the book, you say there's other chapters that you would like to write that you didn't even get to. I think you talked about um, celebrity and sports and scientism or something like that, that like if you go around and just look at your life, there are plenty of things that we put sacred expectations on. Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, 
and not just not just the culture out there, but me as a guy who you know writes, who's a professional Christian, for lack of a better word, you know, who yeah. uh, I was thinking about something along these lines just yesterday. Someone was talking to me about, um, oh gosh, the seculosity around sort of some some of the environmental concerns, especially as it relates mm-hmm. to you know China stopped buying our recycling at least here in Virginia, and everyone is still very much dealing with that reality like what does that mean i still want to recycle i still have built my i but but i can't you know and 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 when something's taken away from you uh or the insistence on still doing it even though you know it's maybe not going anywhere i just it, it struck me as something that seemed to be there was a piety about it i guess yeah do you think so what i'm saying is i've been contaminated by the idea it's stuck in my head for months i made a trip to greece for it so i'm like I'm contaminated. I get the idea from your experience. So do you think it takes people a while to buy into the idea that they have, uh, to use your word, a, a piety about things like recycling or envi- environmentalism or other things? Does it take a, a little while to get into that idea? Usually the stuff that people are most resistant to talking about in these terms is the one that they actually take that way. You know, if they're, if you're saying like, oh, I can, politics is not too important to me it's th- because it's too important. You know, it can't be made too mm-hmm. important. Or food. You know, uh, I remember I remember talking about this idea of, uh, for the book with someone at a dinner party and then I was sort of like at the end there like so so what do you do for a living and she was like i'm a nutritionist and i, I believe like she spouted off these very radical ideas about uh, purity as it relates to food and uh you know and and i think she'd had some sort of um cancer as a child and had found that a certain type of diet had really not just helped her heal but it kind of changed her life from the inside out and who was i to there i i felt like maybe in retrospect the whole time was i passing judgment i didn't mean to be but at the same time i wouldn't want to sit there and tell her well you know you sound like a fundamentalist you know because because um that's just rude and uh also <laughs> uh but yeah you know luke i find that um yeah people when they even read the subtitle of the book um which is how career parenting technology uh food politics and romance became our new religion and what to do about it i have seen the lights go on for a lot of people and not not i'm not just talking about uh kind of the home team or the choir. I, I see it for everyone. I was just with a, a person yesterday, a woman who I, you know, hasn't darkened the door of the church for years and years, but um, said that she felt that the book described her experience of life in the 21st century as being somehow pressured and a, uh, that there was like a, a religiosity about yep. there was it, it, being afraid of being sort of labeled heretical and cast out and also just also feeling like powerless to opt out of some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're spot on when you talked about the one that we're most uncomfortable to hear described is probably the one that we ascribe to ourselves. <laughs> and so you, you wrote this section, the section, I'm going to read you a section from your book. Um, and this is you talking about exercise. And uh, after you've made the obligatory CrossFit joke about how do you know if someone does CrossFit, don't worry, they'll tell you, which uh, CrossFit jokes are always spot on. And then you say this, which explains why sledgehammers, truck tires, and a general lack of air conditioning feature so prominently. The debasement doubles as a form of atonement. Now, in my garage, I have two sledgehammers, an oversized tractor tire, and a lack of air conditioning, and I go work out in there every day. And so I'm reading this going, man, David's an idiot. Like, he got this one wrong. And then I'm going, oh, 
Maybe he's just like, he's just stepping on my toes here. I need to ask the question of what am I doing here? Oh, well, I mean, that's, I think a lot of people that I talk to who actually, I know that you are a CrossFitter and most people that are engaged in it sort of have a good sense of humor about it. You know, yeah. yes, I know it's a little cult, a little cultish or, um, yeah. but yeah, I think, I think like, uh, we want to do the extreme exercise phenomenon is interesting because it's like the more debasing or the more something resembles hard labor, the more we feel like it pays off in some way. Mm-hmm. And like, what's that going on? Of like, we're paying to, in order to do this thing that we used to be paid for. <laughs> and, um, but yet we feel we're getting more out of it. If we wouldn't yeah. do it voluntarily. I don't know. It's a, it's strange, and there is, and I think a slight bit of the atonement. Actually, I took some of that from Heather Haverleski, who's that writer out in LA, who who writes a lot about these things. Even though she's she's writing for New York Magazine, but she was she was talking about puritanical uh, attitudes towards exercise and what that does to a person. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm never going to read her stuff because I don't like her already. But there's a li- <laughs> there's a line that you say about. Um, Oh, you make this joke about uh, one mock testimonial of whatever it is that uh, I ran 27 miles today. Now I feel nothing. And like, that's the goal. Like it's working because I don't feel anything. And I had a moment where I went to my garage to work out. I had a stressful night before, maybe a meeting or something. And I have an injury and I can't work out. And my wife comes out and I'm just laying on the ground, like on my stomach. And she goes, are you okay? And I'm like, no, and like I had this breakdown because I was expecting my catharsis from my stress to be found in the workout, and then all of a sudden I can't work out. I'm going, w- w- um, like I like I had a breakdown, like w- crap. And then I started going, Luke, maybe you need to ask a deeper question of how come this is the only way you can find release from stress in your life. Mm. But you, yeah, I mean you're right, and you use the language of of atonement mm. in there, and with. So part of the fitness is atonement, but the bigger question that it seems that each of these religions is answering, and and correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but the idea of how can I justify my existence? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's where people ask me, you know, is this just a book about idolatry? And I would say, well, everything is ultimately kind of about idolatry, if you you can read it through that lens. But this is much more, it's, it's more talking in terms of self-justification, uh, which is a language I'm comfortable with as sort of theologically, but I'm also comfortable with it from like a social science perspective. And uh, people like Jonathan Haidt and Carol Tavris, who've been writing for a long time about how the drive to justify ourselves, to validate our existence, to feel good to feel enough really lies behind a whole lot more of our striving and our suffering and our differentiation from other people than we would um, like to admit. And so, yeah, enoughness is my sort of euphemism for righteousness. It's not, it's not exact, but I think um, when I use that phrase, you know, when I, when I talk about people feeling anxious today or lonely because they're striving to be, uh, you know, good enough in some way or, you know, thin enough or wealthy enough or influential enough or holy enough, um, again, I, I see recognition and that makes me uh, happy because I know that that form of not enoughness is a, is a kind of a core uh, drive or struggle for me, and um, I'm glad to know that it's not just me. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you're you're definitely right. And the idea of justifying my existence, I, obviously, it's in the subtitle, and you, you have uh, quite a bit of ink devoted to it. But but parenting, I, I don't. Uh, I too have three small children, and the line you say is that helicopter parenting is uh, a religious undertaking. And so this this idea that I find my existence and my value in my kids is 
I'm not going to say it's more prevalent. Maybe just because that's the stage of life that I'm in that I see that and go, well, yeah, I, I obviously see that one. It's all over the place. But parenting seems to be something that's supposed to be about giving away, but somehow we've turned it into, it's something that I have to consume and receive. How does that happen? Well, I, gosh, I mean, I think um, we, 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 we've, well, there's a lot of like religious elements here, but we, um, we look to our children to, you know, uh, sometimes we look to them to sort of be our second chance at life, you know, to, um, yeah. to, you know, uh, do, do, pursue the dream that we didn't give up on or to uh, marry the person we, you know, let go or something like that. There's a bit of just vicarious redemption that goes on there. There's like the immortality in the sense of like someone being your legacy and uh, the way that you will live on sort of forever and ever. And there's like, there's a legitimate eternal life aspect to it. But I think most of the ways we, we turn parenting into religion is simply by seeing, um, making no distinction between the child and ourselves. And in fact, uh, everything that they are is simply interpreted as a direct reflection of us by the either positive or negative. But, you know, you see the, like in the college admission scandal, for example, you see, uh, parents who um, I think as much as they wanted to provide for their children, I think that was a big part of it. And maybe because they were working so hard, they felt guilty and they wanted to maybe make up for it or atone for their uh, uh, absence. But I, I also think that you want to be at the cocktail party. You want to be driving the car that's got the, the Harvard sticker on the back, which signals not to other kids. It signals, or even to your own child, it signals to other parents. I am good enough because my kid goes to this school. And uh, as as always, like when when it's with little kids, like my stage of life, I'm much. Um, I'd say 85% of my anxiety about parenting has to do with the judgment of other parents, not uh, the welfare of my child. And, you know, I, most of the time when I say that to, to young parents, they sort of nod their heads. They're like, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, the reason I don't let them, you know, run around without shoes at the playground is not because I think that they're going to get a glass in their foot or that they're going to – it's going to be uncomfortable. It's because I don't want another parent coming over and judging me. And that's um, – <laughs> I think so that true. I think it's so or the, the reason I don't leave my kids in the great example these days is the reason I don't leave my kids in the car when I go into CVS or something. In some states, it's illegal, but it's also like um, I was left in the car when I was a kid. I have like I think I think there's something like you have to have to leave a child in a car for ten thousand years statistically in order to make sure that they would be abducted for ten thousand straight years, and yet. Um, but we just don't want to be judged by other people as being these neglectful parents, even though there's no actual danger involved. I mean, I'm sure you people could trot out the one example of terrible things that have happened. But yeah, that's that's the religiosity of yeah. parenting. It, and people ascribe to these like schools of parenting and the new books and this and that. Mm-hmm. It's so uh, they're so uh, fanatical about it. Yeah, and, and so religion, typically traditional religion has typically been a place that people go to to find this atonement, this, like, this is where I get made right, this is where I find the fulfillment. And when there's an absence there, we, we turn it all over the place to other things. And this is, is that right? Is that how you'd say it? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, th- I think that religion at its best, not always, we all can trot out the, the litany of crimes, but the, at its best, your clergy person in town, they were your local forgiveness person. They could help you with your shame, with your guilt. They were a place to unload that stuff. They were also a place to, you know, to be condemned and to be accused of things. Yeah. But mainly the function I think that they were serving that we didn't even realize was that there was a massive pressure valve for all of the um, sin, for lack of a better word, all of the um, misdoing and dysfunction 
And uh, without that, yeah, that, that, that burden of guilt looks for a place to unload. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of these uh, secular religions or seculosities, they, they, they maintain all of the demand, is what I say in the book. They maintain a lot of the demand of sort of the old-fashioned religion, but none of the mercy. Like it's just sort of – the weight scale has no room for mercy. You know, the bank account, there's no um, – absolution baked into that it's either you have the money or you don't um i don't know the instagram these are these are not the uh social media technology these are pretty merciless spheres and so i think it just uh, compounds people's anxiety it certainly yeah, does mine I, no and i think the differentiation of mercy is is the big difference that they don't have built in the idea that there is grace for you and yeah that's that's spot on the uh, the apocalyptic romance stuff, which is you reference in the book, we we did it in our series as well, and you talk about how um, how we all end up marrying the wrong person. I think there was a it's a piece by uh, Alain de Bontem. I I always say his name wrong, but uh, whatever his name is, where you, it's not that if you will, but you do, and that none of us are expected to actually be the fulfillment of someone's like ideal, and we can't expect someone else to do the same thing for us. But when you put that pressure on them, there is no inherent like mercy that we can be just a human being as we are. I mean, that's, that's, that's the whole thing. That, that's the reason, you know, that article that Alain wrote for the New York times. I mean, I, say his name, right? I thought, it was, me. I thought it was Alain de Botton. I don't, I don't know. He's, he's like Swiss English or something. Like that. He's got I a had, very interesting pedigree, um, <laughs> but he, he should get him I, on here. I have Googled like how to say your name. And I think he did a Tim Ferriss interview in which he talked about it. And I was going to quote him in a sermon. I wrote it and I practice it with my intern. And then I get into the middle of my sermon and I'm like, a writer once said, I, like I just chickened out to not say it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, he, uh, yeah, that article was the most read article in the New York Times of all 2016, and that really? was the year of the presidential election, which yeah, was wow. kind of newsworthy. <laughs> and so it's like, what what are people actually thinking about? And the mm. truth is, we're really thinking about our relationships more than anything else. And so the um, yeah, that article, I think it said that you know we we've swallowed wholesale this very religious idea that we are supposed to marry someone who, to complete us. You know, that's the great Jerry Maguire thing. And and when you talk to people about Jerry Maguire, like when I talk to younger people today, about they don't know what that is, but they still know the soulmate myth. They're they're very aware of it. Like you know, Aziz Ansari, yeah. that th- you could talk to them about yeah. Master of None, and they would know much more there. Yes. But uh, this idea that we're supposed to uh, you know meet someone who's not only supposed to be our like partner in going through life and materially and economically, but also fulfill our every emotional need and keep us both best friends and, you know, lovers and, uh, every, basically be everything to us. And, you know, we all like shirk. We, no one wants to be that to another person. I don't think Mm -hmm. we think of someone else being that for us. And, uh, it's a very strange situation, but I think it accounts for at least that expectation and the idea that the hundred percent right person is out there means that we refuse to settle for, you know, the good enough partner, the person who might just be able to love us, um, as we are as another sort of, you know, incomplete human. So that's, that was actually my wedding, wedding vow to my wife. I'm good enough. 
Like I'll be a good enough partner. I'm not the best. I'm not perfect. I'm just, I'm okay. And Did you, re- you really said that to her? <laughs> no, I should have. That would <laughs> Baby, be more realistic. <laughs> look in my eyes. <laughs> I'll be all right. <laughs> I'll be okay. I mean, it could be worse. It could be better, but it's, uh, it's all right. And you're definitely right about the Jerry Maguire thing. I referenced that to teenagers that are, I did a, uh, a Wednesday night class for teenagers. Uh, and I said, yeah, it's like the Jerry Maguire. And they're all like, what is, what is that? Uh, and I'm like, Ooh. oh, I'm old. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. And so all, all these are like attempts to fulfill, to satiate our need to have our existence valued and measured. And this is why I deserve to be here. And so at the end of the book, you make a move to say, if it's all about these works to get there, doing something that continues the same game is not going to work. And so you make the comparison to um, to Riptides and you tell a story, I guess it's your your father-in-law or grandfather-in-law was that right no, it's my father-in-law yeah okay so he gets yeah. sucked down the ocean by riptide yes this is very very much happened when my wife was a young girl they were at a beach and he got sucked out into a riptide and you know that they, they say about riptides is that uh the worst thing you can do is struggle against a riptide it will not only pull you over it will exhaust you unless and you're a crossfitter unless you're a crossfitter unless you have like a couple of huge truck tires uh, you know floating with and a low self-esteem to make you have him yes good (laughs) um but yeah he got uh, the the whole it was funny because that story had really been i was working on this finish trying to finish the book while i was on vacation and we were at the beach and they told the story i was like wait a second because i'd heard the story a bunch of times before and i was like um uh, that's the ending to my book because <laughs> <laughs> thank you. May I use it please? TM, you know, seculosity. But yeah, if you struggle against it, the only thing, the only way people survive a real riptide, I'm talking about the serious kind that, that, that can, can kill a person and that they, that does kill more people every year than shark, uh, you know, being eaten by a shark that the more you struggle against it, the worse it gets. And the more effort you throw at it, the more lethal it becomes. And so my, I mean, um, it's not a, I don't think it's a very, um, you know, vague metaphor. It really is that I didn't want to give people more to do, more striving, more, more, a new roadmap to being enough. Okay, just try it this way now. Um, or another thing to feel like they're failing at. It was really a, a proclamation that like, cause the story ends as people can read it. Spoiler alert. He, he gets sucked out there and, um, he does survive because he knew he'd been trained as a kid not to struggle against the riptide. But, um, he's still, when he gets out there, he's like a mile out from shore. I mean, he's wow. really, really far out there. They can't see him. My wife is flipping out. She's like the most traumatic event of her childhood, which means she doesn't have, didn't have that traumatic of a childhood, but it was, um, and, uh, no joke. A man comes swimming by with flippers on doing deep water, like race training and this mm-hmm. is like the middle of the like the late 80s so that guy is really hardcore wow. you know yeah, yeah, yeah. and um he rescues my my father-in-law so it wasn't enough just to give him a new technique to sort of beat this the, the, the riptide he he actually was rescued and so that's my way of saying that even even in the midst of our seculosity and the ways that we're intoxicated and stuck in some of these things even if even against our better judgment um well, we really, God is the answer, not some new idea of God. Yeah. Um, I like and, how you said it, uh, it, it has to be received, not created. Mm. And you, you have this, uh, um, the value of not creating your own view of God that would somehow work, because if it's constructed, 
to a degree, like that's you, you still worked for it, and, and it's not the same as the the received one in Jesus. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, I was thinking like you know. Um, you can't construct a religion of grace. Because what I'm really saying is that all these seculosities, all of this secular it all functions as law. It, it, it basically says, do this and you will live. Like, if, you know, be, you know, eat well enough, vote well enough, love well enough, and you will be enough. And uh, what we're, the heart needs and what we yearn for and what, in fact, is the only thing that really is of any hope is a religion of grace, which says, uh, you know, um, you are enough no, uh, your enoughness is a gift rather than something you can actually uh, leverage through your own sweat. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was trying to say at the end, it's like, you know, basically I would, I would love it if there was just religions of grace hanging off trees and like people could just construct it out of thin air and your imaginary friend, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, in order, it doesn't work that way. It just like um, uh, no gift. I say there, I think no gift that I give to myself um, or that someone else really gives to me is going to matter as much as the one that comes completely by surprise, and is but is a real gift, you know. Um, the yeah, I, I forget exactly how I put it in there, but I know that um, you know even a re- great religion of grace, or in practice, or at least a praxis of grace, which would be like a great therapist, I think, Luke, mm-hmm. um, who is someone who's on your side and is not there to judge you and is there to f- absolve you. In fact, that's what a lot of therapists in, in practice do. Um, at the end of the day, you're still paying them. Paying them, yeah. That's and right. if you don't pay them, that uh, and yep. as good as the people they are, it's going to be revoked, or it will no longer last. Yeah. And so it won't be as effective as that which comes freely, and that which comes by surprise, and from outside of you. And so that's kind of what I'm what I'm trying to get at in that section. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of religion of grace because the antidote for all this striving, the effort is not better striving, which unfortunately this maybe this is the uh, the religion of Jesus land kind of stuff that. Which is your your way of saying? Well, you can say it better yourself. But it, the idea that like we're doing more and we're just doing it with a God lens on that that doesn't solve the problem. Just because you've got the WWJD bracelet on doesn't mean that the sweat that you are creating isn't still going down the wrong direction. Isn't still fighting against the riptide. Mm. And so it, it, maybe explain a little bit about how the Jesus Land idea of, in some ways, the religion of Jesus has become just like every other religion. Yeah, Jesus Land is like a, a euphemism that I took from Ben Folds. Uh, you know, he does a song called Jesus Land, which is it's just a way of describing kind of pop Western Christianity that feels like increasingly divorced from the real thing and is yeah. mi- mixed up with late period capitalism. And I was at uh, can I interrupt for a second? I yeah, was at yeah. a comedy club uh, in LA not too long ago, and I heard uh, some say, "Any hey, Christians in the room? Christians in the room?" And uh, someone raised their hand and goes, "Are you a real Christian or a California Christian?" <laughs> and and he goes, how often do you go to church? And he goes, ah, like once or twice a year. And he goes, ah, sh- shut up, man. You're a California Christian, right? So it's like, like a casual Christian. That's California is for casual. I, I guess I didn't get to interview him while he was in his set, but I think that's kind of the gist of what he was saying. But okay, so um, the the Jesus land. That's Ben Folds' language. Yeah, it's Ben Folds' language, but it's my. I just kind of adopted as a way to describe like what pop Christianity looks like. But on the left and the right, I mean, because I'm 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 an Episcopalian. I'm sort of my context is like mainline sort of dying dying mainline Christianity. But um, the idea is that it resembles more of these secular expressions than the real thing. So people's experience of church tends to be as a, as a vehicle or a venue for like, again, asserting your enoughness or like somehow uh, earning it or to, or, um, you know, um, 
claiming it or something like that, where people that, you know, struggle to, you know, be holy enough or pray enough or, or give enough, or in, in my context, it would be to volunteer enough to, to do enough justice work. And as a result, people just get burnt out. You know, that, that's the great uh, phrase today that describes every sort of one, uh, is that we're just burnt out. And that's what I think this book speaks into. But yeah, in, in the Christian form, uh, context, a lot of it has to do with this do more, try harder, be a better version of yourself rather than any kind of um, proclamation about who God is or what God has done. Yeah. How do you think you would prescribe the religion of grace on a macro level to like Big C Church? Because you said you're... Uh, your language, dying church, but I think across the board, regardless of the denomination, the the numbers for churches are all going in the wrong direction. Mm. Very few of them are up and to the right. So I don't, not just the Episcopal church, most churches are, are getting smaller numerically. And there's a lot of reasons for that for another time, another place, for another conversation. But what does a religion of grace say or offer churches who see numbers declining and whose typical response is, well, we just must do, 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 to fix it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I don't think, I think when people actually do show up at church today, they usually have walked on broken glass to get there, meaning they're there for a reason. And the reason is not to uh, get involved in, com- maybe it's a little bit to get involved in community. I think mostly it's because they're dying for some hope and they're filled with despair and they just don't know where to turn. And they may, that might be completely subconscious. But I think that the baseline, I mean, if I were to have prescribed anything to the church and I, I if I sometimes feel like to prescribe something, it, as I say in the end of the book, means almost that you'll you're you're it's an anticipating a reaction against it. But what I would describe at least would be that um, you know we could we could presume that people are hurting and everyone's in pain, and in fact, what they what we're looking to church for is to find God and to find some uh, absolution, comfort, um, you know, healing, all of these things that. Um, you can't really find other places. So, um, and you know, as, as maybe self-important as it says, I, I, I've, I attend a church in a very like progressive context where, where we preach grace every week and people just don't even know why they keep coming, but they do. And, you know, there, there's record numbers and um, it's not, it's not up to, it's, is. I would say I have an enormous amount of hope for the gospel, for God's work in the world. But um, when church becomes, they think they, they, they think they need to double down and to ask more of people, that people need to be more hardcore. I think that's a profound mistake because I, I think that basically everywhere else in the world is telling us we're not enough, that we need to do more, be better, work harder, and to come to church and to be still, to not be distracted, to be with other people physically, not virtually, and to, uh, you know, receive something. I think that's of great, great importance and, and great beauty. And I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to become less important. I think it will become more important and more rare. And I think that's a good word. Like that is the gospel, the religion of grace put, in, put into action is stop making people feel like they're not enough by not attending. That's a good word. That's a really good word. Now, uh, description versus prescription. The word prescription comes from the CrossFit community. They talk about a prescribed workout for the day. Just letting you know where that comes from and to <laughs> further indict myself as someone in the religion of fitness. But um, It gets results. It gets results. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, um, no question. Yes. <laughs> you said that people walk on broken glass to get to church. What makes you feel like that's uh, how people feel like getting to churches? No, I mean, meaning like uh, 
life is painful is what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's uh, full of disappointments and, yeah. uh, and everyone, you know, you know, that, that it's, it's a cliche, but it's a true cliche that everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Um, I, I the longer I live and I'm not that old, but, um, I have just passed a few important uh, benchmarks, but, uh, the more I see everyone who I, people who you think have it together, marriages that you think are going great, careers you think are awesome christians who you think are sanctified i mean you always um you just don't know what goes on behind closed doors and i think that when people come to church they're often looking for something uh some word they're looking for some word they might be looking for friends too but they're looking for some word of hope and uh and if they come and what they get is like the you know the the um youth group's you know, annual Sunday to go wash cars or something. It's like, okay, that's important. But, um, so-and-so's brother committed suicide last week. Like what, what do you have to tell that person? And the truth is you start preaching to that person and it turns out there's 15 more like them. They just haven't been able to tell you. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, I, I, I find that to be true. And maybe I'm, uh, maybe that's a darker view, but it's also, I think a more hopeful view. No, I, I think someone who does what we do professionally, you know some of those stories that happen behind closed doors, and you have the rare access to know at least a, f- a few faces of struggles that not everyone else knows about. And I feel the pressure, or maybe the calling, whichever way you want to read that, to to make sure that somewhere in the service that there is gospel proclaimed. And mm. maybe it's simply the sacraments that are being offered to them. Maybe it's the songs that are being sung or the scripture that's read. But yeah, I, I think that's that's always important to to put front and center because, you know, my setting in, in Texas, church is a little different in Texas than Virginia. Might be fair to say uh, mm-hmm. church. I mean, Texas is just different, but... Sometimes when people are coming to church, it's because that same sort of, I want to be a good Southern, I want to be a good Texan, which means I'm going to have the right sticker in the back of my car for where my kids go to school. I'm going to show up at church. I'm going to do this right thing. And it's almost as if we need to make the gospel move to say, you come here for one thing or, or the jujitsu move, really. You come here for this, but we're going to turn it around and offer you something else. It's like that, you tell this great story. I think it's called uh, Thank You, Ma'am, of kid who tries to steal from a lady and he wants to go buy some shoes or something like that. She says, no, come to my house. I'm going to cook you a meal. And then I'm going to give you the money for the shoes. It's almost like people show up to church and say, w- w- would, you, would you cross off this box that I need fulfilled saying that I'm doing good? And instead we need to say, actually, w- we can do that, but there's more that we have to offer. And it's a different scorecard. Mm. But that's that's beautiful, and I, you're right. I think in Texas there probably is still some social pressure, and there's there's some here too. Don't get me wrong. I I just think that we we uh, we make a mistake when we view there are yes. It, I think that you can spend some some of church maybe uh, you know uh, dressing down the uh, pretensions that we carry in with us, and knowing this is not the place where that stuff really matters. Yeah. Um, and uh, but ultimately, the great cry of the heart. I'm convinced no matter what it looks like on the outside, no matter what the context, whether it be, you know, um, Birmingham, Alabama, or, you know, Vancouver is, um, am I enough? And, uh, do you love me? Uh, those, these are the, I, I don't think that really varies. And so, um, how do we, the Christian answer is sort of, uh, you are not enough, but God is, and therefore you are. It's like a, it's a kind of a, it's an acknowledgement that the pain you're feeling is not, a fiction 
or a, an abstraction or the, 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 you were, the, the way that your wife finds it difficult to live with you is not because she's crazy. It's because you actually are kind of difficult. But it's in the midst of that, in the midst of that, that's where um, God's love uh, is actually made real. That's, that's what that's where I would t- tell the church to do. I mean, I don't think the church is going to listen to me anytime soon, but I do see great, <laughs> great pockets of amazing work being done. And, you know, part of the book, the real hope of the book is, um, is that I b- really believe in the paradigm of death and resurrection. And to the extent that the seculosity that we're engaged in and stuck in, in a lot of ways is kind of, uh, killing us for lack of a better word. I think it's also bringing us, you know, um, it's also sort of uh, uh, making us surrender or it's, it's loosening the grip that we have that is uh, so crazy making. And I, I believe that, you know, to the, that, that, that's what, what, what AA would say. That's where, that's where God is to be found in the defeat and in the giving up and in the admission of powerlessness and the, the God who raises the dead is that's, that's where we, uh, that's where we encounter that God. Yeah. All right. I only have uh one critique of the book, and that is that you didn't write it two years ago before I wrote my sermon series on this and <laughs> spent 13 weeks, because the move I didn't have was the religion of grace. Like the, the We're all trying to uh, earn, justify, validate ourselves. I, I like the way you use justification. I, I thought that was, it, it's really compelling. But the move of, but, but Jesus, but the religion of grace is the only one that offers you mercy. Like That's the turn I didn't have, and that's why yours became a, a book and mine's just in the bottom of a shelf right now. Oh, well, I can't. Well, that sounds like a great, great series, man. And, you know, books, I don't think they, they're, they're, they're fun to write and maybe they help people, but I think a uh, sermon by a living, breathing human being is um, worth a whole lot more. But you, I mean, you, you're preaching consistently, right? I am. Yeah. They, they let, they let me up there. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. You know, so how do you differentiate the work that you do as a writer? Cause you've written other things as well. And then also you're, you're preaching, you're speaking. Um, well, there's like a more, I mean, I think of preaching as a very creative act. You know, I think most preachers do think of it in, in a, as kind of a artistic work. Uh, but writing is more careful. It's more considered. It's sort of, uh, yeah, I've been writing for the web for a long time, but that's a very different form of writing. Um, I don't, I don't really know. I, I know that I'm still trying to get across the same, I'm trying to emulate the writers that I connect with who are ones that are, uh, have a punctured self-importance and a slightly, uh, radical or at least, uh, occasionally risk, risk something in what they're writing. Um, and maybe in, in speaking, there's just a, I think brevity is really uh, important, but also um, humor. I think in writing humor is hard to do. Mm -hmm. And it's also, uh, you need to go on a little longer. Sometimes you need to dig, you, you have the permission to dig in and know that people can pick up something and put it down. So I don't know. It's interesting. Process questions are always so interesting. I don't know. How do you differentiate between the two? Uh, well, I'm still just trying to figure it out. I've gotten, uh, I've turned in a second book and uh, I'm still trying to figure out this writing thing. But one of the things I've been kind of, the metaphor, the, the kind of the frame of reference is the, the stand-up comedian. And mm-hmm. I, I watched a, a talk you did about bridging the gap and you start with a Jim Gaffigan bit that he did. And so I know that you're somewhat accustomed to stand-up, but I, I know a lot of those guys and gals they'll they'll workshop their material and then eventually it'll become a special that that's what they really they tour and that that, that's what they you know uh canonize to some degree and record and put it out there and so so i'm starting to think of like preaching like this is my weekly 
talk, but eventually the the most important stuff maybe becomes canonized in a book. And I hate to say the word canonized, but it's 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 the thing that has more uh, more life to it and, it, and it lasts longer. Whereas a sermon, it's like I preached it, I erased it off my to do list, and you know you go on. Whereas a book at least has some sort of I don't know time. No. It's, it's amazing how much, uh, I was talking to my brother who's an academic and he says, for a lot of people, you haven't said anything until you've said it in the book. And I was like, I resent that, you know, <laughs> like, I feel like I've said a whole hell of a lot writing online or whatever it is. Yeah. But then like you, you write something full length and it's got a nice cover and all this, people can feel it in their hands and you get people, it, it's amazing the different, uh, at least the way that we conceive of it differently or the, the projections we bring to it, the transference might be the right, better word. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, and, and I would say that this book is really a distillation of the things that I've felt like uh, most meaningful in the work I've been doing over the last decade or so. And um, the problem with writing something like this is that it's fairly timely. Who knows what it'll look like? And the, the force of the dynamics at work will continue, but the expressions of it are going to get weirder. And, yeah. Um, more bizarre, I guess, and uh, maybe some of it, you know, people will roll their eyes and be like, "Oh, you thought social media was was corrosive then? Just just wait, wait until 2026 when oh. <laughs> when we all get chips implanted and Mark Zuckerberg takes oh. over our appendages." Mm. That is terrifying. Um, I had uh, a publisher or editor, someone say, uh, "You know, you, you use too many pop culture references. What about people who are going to read this book in ten years?" And my first thought was. I don't think anyone's going to read this in 10 years. I mean, like, are you kidding me? That's the last concern I have is 10 years from now, but you're right. Um, no, I feel the same way. I, I, I had to like de-pop cultureize some of this book because the editor was like, you know, Dave, take, you know, so people aren't going to know what the good place is. You know, you, they have, these things have a short shelf life, but I was like, I still want to put it in a footnote. Yeah. <laughs> I, I respect the footnoting game. It's, 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 uh, it's quite strong. Well, uh, the, the book is, Good. I would highly encourage people to get it. Seculosity. Uh, I guess it's been out for a few weeks now or a while now. But um, oh, this is a Fortress Press. So, yeah. did you work with Tony Jones? Yeah, man. He oh, says Tony. hello, Tony. It's like he was psyched to hear I was talking to you today. He's, he was. He was. He man. He was a great editor. I gotta say. You know what, my friend? Uh, you know Richard Beck. He, he is a great editor. Excuse yeah, me. He's not dead. Uh, he's uh, alive, yes, so. I've uh, I, I really enjoy Richard Beck's work actually yes. a lot. His Calvin and Hobbes series is foundational for me. But I really love the book he wrote on the devil. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, uh, reviving old scratch. Yes, but he uh, he has been uh, given effusive praise to Tony Jones' ability to help his voice and his writing. So um, yeah, Tony's a good dude. And uh, Tony, we love you. We love you, Tony. We love you, Tony. Hey, uh, con- congr- congrats on the good book, man. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>